Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 598. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Agent of Springtime, Lorraine Sink. It's me, Flora <laughs> the Explorer. I don't know. That all tracks. It is pretty nice seeing the flowers bloom and smelling the smells before it destroys us with all of our allergies. Oh, I'm already in allergy town. I am sneezing <laughs> up a storm. <laughs> but at least it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful in New York. Um, I'm from a place in California that like our I think our state plant is tumbleweeds to the point where when my the first time my husband came to my town to like meet my family and hang out um, when we were driving into Bakersfield, California, where I am from, the first thing we saw was a huge tumbleweed the size of a car <laughs> just circle by. And I was like, I didn't lie. It's all real. So anyways, living in New York where we have vegetation and rain is truly, truly magical every spring. Wonderful. But look, we are not here to just talk about the seasons. No, this is the official Marvel podcast where we talk about what's happening this week in Marvel, whether it's games, comics, movies, TV, or whatever Lorraine and I are excited about. Yes. And there's a lot to be excited about this week, um, especially because today we're going to get right on into it because we've got a lot to share. And later on, Ryan... One of those things you're going to share is a conversation with Jeffrey Brown about his adorable new book, Thor and Loki, Midgard Family Mayhem. I had two older brothers and we didn't get into any particularly dangerous trouble, but there were times where we we stressed our parents out with mischief. And, you know, I think Thor and Loki's relationship, whether it's the comics or, you know, the cinematic universe they bicker and squabble, they have their disagreements, but then they team up and get things done. Oh, and of course, we have all the Marvel news that you could ever want in your whole life with new comics and announcements and uh, maybe some Marvel Studios trailer action and more. So let's let's do it. But first, Lorraine, did you what? know today is a very special day? My birthday? Oh, no, that was last week. <laughs> It's World Quantum Day. Happy quantum, birthday. Quantum, quantum, quantum day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's right. World Quantum Day aims at promoting the public understanding of quantum science and technology around the world. Mm, like quantum science as in Marvel Studios, Ant-Man and the Wasp, quantum mania. Yes, indeed. And who better to help us understand the scientific implications of quantum science in Marvel Studios, Ant-Man and the Wasp, quantum mania? than the inventor of a subatomic Hubble telescope, Cassie Lang herself, played by the wonder, Catherine Newton. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Wow. Hello there. I did not think I was going to be the one that was following the one who created the quantum telescope. I had mm. no idea that was going to be me. But hello, everyone. I'm Catherine Newton. I play the, the girl, Cassie Lang, who happened to create the quantum telescope. <laughs> Indeed. But you're not on your own here. To help us celebrate World Quantum Day, we're also joined by Rick Lovard. Rick is the director of the Science and Entertainment Exchange, part of the National Academy of Sciences, which connects scientists with movie makers. Hi, Rick. That's right. Thanks, Ryan. 
and Rick brought on Dr. Spiros Mihalakis, who is a mathematical physicist and manager of outreach at Caltech's Institute for Quantum Information and Matter. Spiros worked closely with Marvel Studios on Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp to ground the quantum realm, which he named in real science, igniting a global fascination with quantum physics. Spiros leads the U.S. efforts around the celebration of World Quantum Day to inspire the next generation of quantum geniuses. Hello. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. And Rana Adakari is a professor of experimental physics at the California Institute of Technology. He has been working on the goal of gravitational wave detection for 20 years. Much like how Cassie Lang maps the quantum realm without destroying it, Rana is able to probe the universe using gravity and quantum properties of light. Hello, Rana. Hello. Catherine, let's start with you. You play Cassie Lang, Scott Lang's daughter, who clearly has a penchant for science. And in the film, much to the chagrin of Janet Van Dyne, Cassie created a way to map the quantum realm. What did she invent and what was its intended purpose? Well, Cassie created like a Hubble telescope kind of for the quantum realm that could map it out and send a signal down there. And we don't explain how we do this in the movie. And I remember being on set and no one explaining how I'm supposed to use a quantum telescope. So I just pressed a lot of buttons and pushed things and drew things and made it really seem like I knew what I was doing. And I think to me, I have spoken a little bit to Spiro and Rana and they're explaining to me what they're doing. And I think they do the same thing Cassie did. They're pressing some <laughs> buttons. <laughs> uh Kudos to to Peyton Reed, director. He he helped you get to that and and sold it. So great job, <laughs> Rick. It's your job to connect filmmakers to real scientists who help the storytellers with believable, plausible science. What specialties did you need for this movie, and how did you connect with Spiros and Rana? Oh man, this started a long time ago. Uh, while the first movie was in, I want to say pre production, I got a call from Stephen Broussard, who is one of the producers over at Marvel. And they literally asked me if they could have somebody in Atlanta, what, in like three days or two days? It was crazy. Effectively, what Stephen Broussard was asking me for was exactly Spiro's expertise, which, as you can imagine, is uh, fairly unique. He's a fairly unique character. So it would have been hard, actually, to be honest with you, if Spiro hadn't said yes. Must have been really tough to get a set visit to a Marvel production to talk about science. (laughs) Well, it's funny because, you know, it it is two different worlds, honestly. And a lot of times, a lot of scientists haven't even heard of anything to do with Marvel. So you could have a really major actor that they might want to meet with, and the scientists just don't know. And so part of my job is to figure out folks in both worlds who know each other, understand each other, and like finding a way to bridge that gap. It's an important area. Yeah. Rana, you are a professor of experimental physics. Explain what you work on and how does that involve quantum physics? Is is Cassie's invention based on real sciences and, and is it plausible in the future to map or even explore uh, quantum realms? I love the depiction of the microscope telescope in the film because that is what the stuff in my lab looks like. It, it looks like you just went to the garage and you found some stuff and stick it together because you don't have time to make it pretty if you just want to, like you just want it working right now. Um, That's the kind of thing exactly we try to do. So what Cassie has invented is kind of like we've been talking about it for decades. And it's a thing that we want to build. And we're sort of on the path to building it now. But like pieces and pieces. But, you know, what I would say like what Cassie probably did in uh, a weekend or something might take 50 of us like 
five years to do. But <laughs> Cassie is like, you know, it's Marvel. So it, she's not just like smart, but she's super smart, like Mr. Fantastic smart. So that, that all kind of jives together. Uh, what, what we exactly want to do is figure out how to map parts of the quantum realm without disturbing it. It's tiny. And so if you're not careful about it, you know, like Cassie's parents are down there in the quantum realm. And if you just poke a needle down there, you're going to smash everything. So you have to figure out to do it delicately. And that's exactly what we do in my lab, is how to probe quantum things without destroying them. You say you've been doing this for decades. How much has changed in those decades? You know, are you getting closer to someone poking that pin and be like, please don't, please don't, please don't? Or are you still just like, is it so still theoretical? I think just this year we started doing stuff that I, like five years ago, I said, that's just pure science fiction, which is not going to happen. I mean, I've heard people talking about it since I was in school. And I said, no, that's just like the stuff, like you guys are just writing equations on the board. It's like not in the real world are we going to do that. But just this year, like we finally figured out how to measure, you know, like the quantum nature of big, big hunks of stuff and do it in a way that doesn't disturb them and leaves them in their quantum state. And that's just like... When I tell it to people, they say, no, no, that was that thing that, that we all thought we were going to do like late at night after some drinks, but that's not a real thing. And I said, no, it's now a real thing. It's not just imagination. And it's the, it's the first step down the road. That's so cool. Catherine, before we all started talking, you were like, do you have a magic wand? Because this feels like magic. And it, it, I, I have that same reaction when I talk to scientists. I'm just like, you are so cool. You're doing things yes. I can't even imagine. It does feel like that. He was talking about a laser. After I finished this movie, I was so inspired by Cassie and um, how smart she was. And I just wanted to know more. I was really good in school. And so I signed up. I told them I signed up and I took a physics class at UCLA just for fun. I was like, I just want to know more to be able to talk about on my press tour. I feel like I should have taken the class before I played the role because it's really confusing. And the fact that you just said that you were delicate about it, you had to be really delicate with the quantum realm. You have to be, because it's so small, you could break it, is really crazy to me. I I, I don't know, because isn't the quantum realm super, super tiny, microscopic, we can't see it, definite, and yet infinite and huge once you're in there? Yeah, exactly. That's the weird part about it. It's it's infinite and huge. It's It's the whole universe is quantum. But then to really see it happening at the quantum level, you have to go down to that tiny, tiny thing. So it's like, it's just like what it says in the movie. It says Hubble telescope, which sounds weird because that's a thing you used to look out into space. But it's exactly right. A quantum telescope is a thing that looks into tiny things, but then sees the whole universe like that. Spiros, you know, talking about quantum realms, is that a name you came up with? Right. It was a lot of fun, right? A few days after the original consult, I, w- I had just left Pinewood Studios in Atlanta. And Brad Winderbaum, who was one of the producers of the original Ant-Man, shot me an email and said, so all the cool stuff he told us about what happens when you go down there, right? You know, the subatomic, like, you know, world. Do you have any cool names for it? And I was like, well, okay. I, I was being a scientist. I was, okay, how small are we talking about? You know, are we talking nano, which is like one billionth of a meter? Are we talking micro, right? You know, microverse kind of thing, which is like one millionth of a meter. But then I just threw out a couple of names. And I was like, you know, quantum realm, how about quantum realm? And then he just responded with a one-liner. It's like, quantum realm is a pretty great name. So it stuck. Spirus, going off of what you were talking about, how do you take then such a complicated science 
then artfully apply that in a movie to make it believable. Now you've got the name. How do you start piecing all these things together? Because once we start getting the ball rolling, exploring the quantum realm, at least in our films, feels abstract, but also very possible. Yes, I think one of my favorite things about working with, uh, with Hollywood is that you start building a bridge of trust. And I think that's what Rick is also trying to do. Right? Build these bridges between the scientists and the creatives and that we can have fun and be playful together and figure out how to get some really mind-blowing ideas on screen. And I think in Quantumania, they did a pretty nice job um, with the transience of the quantum realm. Like it's, as you're walking there, there's weird stuff happening, appearing, disappearing. But then there was the interesting aspect of it as well that is just grounded and they're like beings of all different stripes. And the thing about quantum physics um, that I love is that it is all about occupying different points of view and getting to know the world from new perspectives. I think you really hit on something there. Like a lot, a lot of the work that we're doing here is, you know, I think it's really easy for most people to just get into their field, get into their work and just do that one thing and have their little bubble and their little world. And it's so important to have those different perspectives. And that's really, you know, most people who are making media don't know a scientist. And, you know, you on the surface, you think there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're really trying to inspire the public with the portrayal of characters who are doing science, it really is important to sit down and have that interaction. And not just that interaction, like, you know, once, but that's one of the great things about Marvel is that they sort of stepped up and said, like, we really want to have an ongoing conversation with scientists like Spiro and Rana. And that, that I think, is really admirable to, to get out there, not just like that they're going to, you know, ask them for some jargon once or twice, but that they really want to have that ongoing deep conversation. Shifting back to the movie for a bit, obviously, you know, Cassie's invention doesn't quite work like a telescope. You've talked a little bit about that. It's more like kind of like sonar sending signals to the quantum realm. Catherine, this, you know, this non-invasive mapping technique would have proven to be safe, maybe, if it weren't for two guys called Kang the Conqueror, MODOK. For anybody listening, can you uh, remind us how they use the technology against Cassie and her family? Yes, I can. So... I wanted to backtrack to what Spiro said a second ago about yeah. having actual images. I, I Paul told me about that, that we were using actual images from microscopes and microscopic like telescopes, and we put those in the movie. And so when I was on set and I was really on this volume stage and I was looking around, I thought it looked crazy. I thought an artist made it up. But our director, Peyton Reed, showed me pictures from a Bible of images for our movie. And he's like, no, these are from actual microscopes and these are real things that are really subatomic and we can't see them with our eyes. It really brings it to light and I feel like Marvel movies do that is they they make you dream. And again we talked about how it feels kind of like Ron is talking to me about magic right now with his laser beam to to the universe and it's really not that far off from magic. Marvel movies are really magical, but there's something about them especially for the young people out there who might be listening or watching these movies. It just makes you dream big. These things are real. Cassie's a superhero. Ant-Man is a superhero, but they're normal people too. Like Ant-Man's a regular guy. Cassie's a regular girl who built a telescope in her backyard. Like anyone can do that. So Kang, to answer your question, he grabs Cassie's signal and he sends one back and it opens up a portal and it sucks Cassie and her family into the quantum realm and she's trapped. They're trapped. They can't get out. They have to build another one. Yeah, and I thought that was really cool how... 
the idea of sending, of trying to map anything, of trying to observe anything, even the quantum realm or even the you know the thing around us in the world, it is a handshake, a relationship between things. In order for us to know something, we need to create a relationship with it. We cannot know anything directly. We do not see things directly. We see them only when particles of light reflect off of them, right? Create a relationship with that object, and then they come to our retinas. And I think it's the same way with the the quantum Hubble telescope, right? Where you're sending in signals and what are you doing? You're entangling your location with the location you're trying to map, but this is a two-way street. So if you're trying to look at it, it can also look back at you if it's known, right? That this is coming from your side. So all that Kang had to do is leverage some of that entanglement between the two locations, the locations where Cassie and the rest of the crew is and the quantum realm and try to invert, I guess, I guess people usually think it's like scientists uh, telling people what should be in the movie, but I just watched it last night for the first time. And when I watched that thing, the signal go back and Kang piggybacks on the signal, like as usual for me, like I thought, no, that's actually a really good idea. We should do that in the lab because this like quantum teleportation is a thing we can do with laser beams. And the trouble with quantum teleportation is like, like everybody's afraid of like if I get teleported uh, like how do they make sure that all my stuff shows up and my like ears don't get switched to my face <laughs> or something like that and the way you do it is like the same way internet traffic works like you have to encode the information so that when you send it over there they're able to unscramble it in a way and so that's why that scene makes so much sense is when Cassie does the thing and sends a signal down Kang gets the signal and now he knows how to unscramble the code and get back out and so he picks up the code from that wave. And that's exactly what, what, what I would like to do. I would like to take our giant laser detectors, LIGO, the Interferometer Gravity Wave Observatory, and actually teleport those signals back and forth to each other. So we'd be teleporting things across the country. And that's a... Like, we never thought about that before. Like teleporting physical things, like bodies, people, clothing... Eventually, but at the at the beginning, what we want to do is just make physical copies of the two places. And when one of them does something, we want the other one to start doing the same thing. So we're teleporting the kind of the ideas back and forth between our machines. So we're trying to figure out, first of all, the mathematics behind this, because we are going against Einstein. It's like, no, this is kind of crazy. Or there's energy conditions, as we call them, that you have to fight against. But once you understand the universe from that quantum point of view, then we should be able to unlock some really insane stuff. Potentially teleportation, real teleportation, right? You know, time travel even, some crazy stuff. So do you think if a Marvel movie does it first, then you're going to figure it out? <laughs> I, I actually think that, yes, if uh, we keep working, scientists keep working with Marvel, I think we can do some really cool stuff. So what I'm feeling from you guys is, even though you're scientists and you're dealing in like fact, you have to be creative in the way you're thinking about breaking things open and discovering new things. You have to believe there's something else that's possible, even if it hasn't been proven yet. So it's a lot like making a movie. You have to be creative and you have to be fearless. You have to know you're going to fail, but you have to keep trying anyway. Yeah. It's, I think you could do boring science, which is like just measuring how heavy this thing is a little bit better. Some people do. I'm not pointing. I'm not naming any names, but some people do. But I think good science is where every day you feel like I'm going to make a fool of myself. Everyone's going to laugh at me. They're going to realize I'm a big fraud and kick me out of this place and I won't be able to play with my lasers anymore. 
okay. and then if you feel like that almost every day, I think it's that means you're an exciting, you're doing stuff. I'm glad we, I feel the same way. So I'm glad we're on the same page here. There's um, a colleague of uh, ours here at Caltech, Jeff Kimball, um, once said something that I love. It's like, if you know what you're doing, don't do it. And I think this is brilliant, right? Uh, when you're at the cutting edge of science, of human thought, and it's not just something that you know requires some brilliant engineering, which is very, very hard, right, to do, but when you don't even know how to think about something. Because for thousands of years, humanity has thought about things in a specific way, like, for example, that space and time are fundamental constructs, right? And we live in them. The theater of life happens on them. There's nothing underneath them. There's nothing from which they, they come from, right? You start going towards metaphysics and you're starting to wonder, are you losing your mind? What can keep you connected to all the human knowledge we've gathered so far and all the science, but still push the boundaries without breaking everything that has come before? Like how do you expand versus blowing up? Like if you're not good at math, I always feel like that's an unnecessary barrier that we put in. When it comes to being creative and thinking about science, how fast can you do some equations? I mean, that matters a little bit, but it's like, I don't know what's a good analogy there, but like a master chef, like you don't really pick your master chef based on who can cut carrots faster, faster right. or something like that. It does, doesn't matter. It's like who's got the taste and the sensibilities and that kind of thing and the curiosity and the passion. And oh, then, wow. yeah, I mean, whatever. You can always do math faster later, like someone else can teach you. But the the main thing is, can you think a little bit differently than everybody else? And can you have fresh ideas? And That's for that, so we true. should, you know, we ought to let in people who just don't have any math background and just say, come on into the lab with us and help us figure out what's going on. Or we want to, there's a mystery in the universe. Let's just all talk about it. You don't need any science degrees. I'll just draw some cartoons and we'll just talk about my cartoons. <laughs> That's the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Science is for everyone. Not just quantum science. Science is for everyone. Everyone belongs from every background, socioeconomic, race, gender. Everyone should get, have the pleasure of finding things out. I think it's such a rush, you know, where you figure something out um, that nobody else has figured out before. And all the, you know, the tens of billions of humans that have lived on Earth in the beginning of the human race, and you just have this one thought now that you're like, wow, this just clarifies, illuminates so many things. And often it takes time, right? Like everything good, it takes time to get to a place like that. But for me, connecting with each other, connecting at the creative level, scientists as creatives, creatives as scientists, right? Coming together, this is where the magic happens. To underscore the importance of what you, you know, the, the likes of Catherine and Ryan are doing is, you know, there's an old trope. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And mm. when, when you think about what it is to be a scientist, most kids, it's just not even unless their parent is a scientist, they're just not thinking about not just the kinds of jobs that Spiro and Ron are doing, but all the other jobs of the people who work in their labs, all of these technical people around them who are designing the equipment and working with them. Like there's just, there are a thousand things that they could be doing and to put that stuff on screen and to have it be done by sort of a non-traditional uh, person or a person from a diverse background. This is something I think that the films you're in, Catherine, are really doing well. You know, I mean, your character, Shuri, like these are, these are characters that are going to influence young women 
um, all over the world. And so that's vitally important for people to understand that science can be done by anyone. And if they don't have those role models and if they don't see it up on the screen, then they're not going to understand. I have a three and a half year old daughter. And so I'm very excited for her to see our films and to see these characters and to see what she can be and to endeavor and to, you know, hope for. And I'm encouraging it. It's a, it's a, an exciting time. And so it's, you're all doing some really cool stuff in all your different ways here. It's pretty neat. Yeah, I was going to say that, um, Catherine, you have an open invitation to come and learn quantum physics from the best. Uh, so, you know, yeah, we, I don't know what's I, all this UCLA talk, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Are we not they good enough have, over here in Pasadena? No, no, I am. Um, I just had like time in between projects and I just signed up online during it was kind of during like lockdown. So I just did it on Saturdays, but I definitely should have looked up over here and, you know, come down for, for some classes again, because like you're saying, I like, I love that saying, um, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I talk about it all the time that I don't think I dream big enough. Like I think being in a Marvel movie was insane. I don't think that's a normal thing. People think that they can do is be in a Marvel movie, right? Like, so I think I'm a little crazy. I think you have to be a little crazy to do something. My, that's what I wanted to do was be in a Marvel movie. You guys want to find the quantum realm and teleport. Like, I could have maybe done that, but that's just not what I wanted to do. I think that's the thing is you can't be afraid to go after things that you want. And you also have to decide what you want and then just just not be afraid to go for it. So maybe people Amen. will want to be scientists after this movie. I don't know. Or after this conversation, <laughs> because this was friggin' great. You were all wonderful, and we appreciate you coming on and chatting with us about World Quantum Day and the quantum realm and all that. But we gotta wrap it up. Thank you all so, so much. Stay quantum. Marvel Studios, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania arrives only on digital April 18th and on 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD May 16th. Ryan, it was so cool to learn so much about real science um, that we hear about in the film. Just really cool. Yeah. Look, all the stuff about holes, that's real. Holes, 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 holes. <laughs> Modoc's butt, real, 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 real. All of it is true. Wow. I, I don't think Modog's butt was actually part of the quantum realm. Yep. yep. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, well, it is. You know yes, it is. Anyway, look, let's check out what else is going on this week in Marvel, because starting off things, we've got a teaser trailer for the Marvels. Yeah, we got to see Carol Danvers, Monica Rambeau and Kamala Khan on a cosmic adventure, getting entangled and into trouble super fun we've got nick fury we got flurkins we've got the big flurkin tongue action we got beastie boys intergalactic taking it back to high school uh for some of us <laughs> we got a big hammer you know yeah, who uh, is that with the big hammer that's a that's one we're gonna i'm sure see a lot more of mm -hmm. it's, it's it's a very accusing seeming hammer but Ooh, who am i to I like say yeah. uh it's fast it's fun it's cool it's cosmic i'm super excited to get to see my favorite three marvel ladies i'm coming to theaters on november 10th I, I really love that teaser trailer it was so so much fun just a blast we all feel ourselves in kamala at times and the moment oh. when she's like nick fury nick fury i laughed <laughs> i laughed it's great uh, it brings me so much joy. I, I need to go back, honestly, and watch the trailer a couple of more times because mm -hmm. I'm nosy 
and I haven't had time to do the freeze frame. Every once in a while, I just I want to know what every little frame is. Yeah, I get it. Also, about the Marvels, I did see over on Instagram that two of our pals posted some stuff. Kelly Sue DeConnick, of course, incredible writer of some many, many, many great Captain Marvel comics. She posted about the trailer with a little FAQ saying, yes, I worked on it. No, no cameo this time. Yes, Nia DaCosta. Nia DaCosta is the director. Yes, Nia DaCosta is the real deal. In fact, even better than you think. I expect I'll go into more detail on this later, which was super cool. She has some other details. You can find Kelly Sue on Instagram at Kelly Sue D over there. And then also she mentioned Jamie McKelvey, wonderful writer and artist and who helped redesign Carol's look back when Kelly Sue was starting to write. But Jamie also posted some shots from the teaser trailer with his art. So actually, Jamie drew some stuff that was created just for the film. And you can check all that out. Again, go watch that teaser trailer for Marvel Studios, The Marvels. It's so good. And you can find Jamie on Instagram at M-C-K-E-L-V-I-E. That's McKelvey on Insta. You can do that on your own time, but right now we got to talk about owning Modoc's naked butt. Oh boy. It is finally coming upon us because Marvel Studios Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania arrives on digital on April 18th and 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD May 16th with, of course, a bunch of bonus features. Yeah, we got a gag reel. We've got audio commentary from director Peyton Reed and writer Jeff Loveness, who are two wonderful comic book loving boys. Just sweet boys. I love and them. so hilarious. So I'm sure that audio commentary is phenomenal. Plus some great featurettes featuring the whole family. I'm talking from the film, Paul Rudd, Evangeline <laughs> Lilly, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, talking about all kinds of you know family dynamics and the bonds and secret layers to their storyline. Some formidable foes with our villains in the film. Plus, of course, deleted scenes like oh, I have yeah. holes and drink the ooze, which are two phrases I'm going to have tattooed on my body. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Again, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is coming to digital on April 18th and 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD May 16th. Yeah. All right. That's what's happening in this universe. But in a galaxy far, far away, Star Wars was having a celebration last week. You might have had your internet blown up if you were over on the socials. Um, of course, you can follow all of the things that happened at StarWars.com if you missed it last week. But we also have some awesome Star Wars comics coming, uh, including Star Wars Dark Droids. Yeah, we're getting some horror in the Star yeah, Wars stories, that. which is really, really cool. Dark Droids is a big event that's coming soon. It's spearheaded by writer Charles Soule. He's writing the main limited series alongside artist Luke Ross. I love Luke and Luke's, oh, Luke's work good. on Star Wars stuff is so, so good. I'm very excited for everybody to see this. Uh, so, like I said, it's horror. It's a Star Wars epic, and it sort of focuses on a new threat that is unleashed throughout the galaxy, corrupting droids, cyborgs, and everything in between. And the, the idea is, who or what is the Scourge? And why is no droid safe? It's a corruption spreading from one droid to the next. you got the Rebel Alliance, the Empire. They're both, like, dealing with the chaos of it. And what role does Ajax Sigma from last year's Star Wars Revelations one-shot play in all this? Whose side is he on? I guess you got to read the friggin' comics you ding-dongs no spoilers here okay <laughs> calm down 
I, when I think of dark droids, I do think of like BB-8 or R2-D2 being like, boop, 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 boop. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Angry boops. Um, all right. Of course, all that is launching in August with Star Wars Dark Droids number one. And then that's going to spin off into new series and tie into the other four ongoing series. So you have, of course, Star Wars, Darth Vader. Dr. Afra, Bounty Hunters, all four of those are going to get touched on. We'll see how the Dark Droid story affects Lobot. Of course, that's like Charles Soule's favorite character. So seeing how that rolls out in the main Star Wars book, what happens with Darth Vader, what happens with Dr. Afra, who the 75 issues of Dr. Afra comics. crazy. Which is wild. That's so, so cool and more. So again, that all kicks off in August. Yeah. And May the 4th will be here before you know it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, But over in the Marvel universe, we're getting ready for some mutant mayhem in the mighty Marvel manor with uh, some (laughs) new fall of X revelations. Some cool titles coming, including Astonishing Iceman, number one, written by Steve Orlando with art by Vincenzo Caratu. And that's going to be coming August 2nd. And this series is going to be uplifting Bobby Drake to superhero greatness, complete with a new base of operations, some never before seen uses of his abilities, which is pretty awesome. He's like an Omega level mutant, some fierce new enemies. And of course, Iceman's new profound purpose is going to position him amongst Marvel's most powerful beings. But a dark side effect of his new mission could cause it all to shatter. Oh, Bobby. Mm-hmm. Um, so look out for that coming in August. Yeah. Then there's Dark X-Men number one, which is a new series written by Steve Fox, art by Jonas Scharf. That's coming in the middle of August, August 16th. And it stars a crew of X-Men that is, I, I love this team. It's got Madeline Pryor, Havoc, Archangel, Gambit, Azazel, Zero, Sweet boy zero. Albert, the ro- like the cyborg version of Wolverine that is so 90s. I love him so much. And M Plate. What, what a weird, wonderful team. What a friggin' team. It's so good. This group bands together to fill the void left by the X-Men and are seemingly the perfect team to combat the harsh conditions of Fall of X. Their hearts are in the right place, but under the unpredictable leadership of Madeline Pryor, aka the Goblin Queen, and they are operating out of New York's limbo embassy, which For anybody who hasn't read it yet, that is established in um, Dark Web, the end of that story that featured Spider-Man and the X-Men from uh, end of last year, early this year. It's really, really cool. Go check that out. This team, will they make things worse? Will they make things better? Guess again, you're going to have to read the damn comic. Stop asking for spoilers. (laughs) The Limbo Embassy, um, disappointingly, not a lot of limbo. Nobody's going under the stick. We don't know Doing the backbend thing. It's... uh... I wonder if Magical stopped by. I mean, you know, seems like she should. Let's see what's going on with her during Fall of X. Yeah. Speaking of magic, actually, let's talk about Realm of X number one, written by Torn Grunbeck, with art by Diogenes Neves. And that's coming on the 23rd of August. This series is going to continue the Krakoan era's fascinating exploration of mutant magic, including magic with a K. Former Valkyrie, Danny Moonstar, Marrow. Love Marrow, Dust, Curse, and Typhoid Mary, who become players in a mystical war orchestrated by a familiar adversary. So we're going to have to wait and see if they can overcome some of those differences and work together as a team. 
I, I'm excited for this team. This is like a really kind of cool, weird team. A lot of cool, weird teams yeah. coming for Fall of X. Why can't the X-Men just have a nice day? I've been asking that damn question for a long time. I guess <laughs> that's not dramatic enough. Fine. All right. Fine. Uh, all right. Let's shift gears because you can do this all day, Lorraine. When Rogers the Musical hits the stage <laughs> at Disney California Adventure Park this summer, premiering June 30th, 2023 and running for a limited time, Rogers the Musical, which is the musical based on Steve Rogers' life as first seen in episode one of Marvel Studios' Hawkeye, which you can watch on Disney Plus right now, will be staged at the Hyperion stage at Disney California Adventure Park. And this is super cool. It is a one act 30-minute production with performances from Tuesday through Saturday on most weeks. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's going to be super fun. It's going to have its own storyline, musical numbers, maybe some merchandise and food offerings over there as well. And of course, if you can't wait, you can see uh, a look at it. Uh, you can get a little taste of this smashing musical over at Marvel.com. So go get a little sneak peek. Yeah. At the uh, musical extravaganza. How do we get James in that musical? Uh, James was just announced as he's directing oh, a, yeah. a new production in the Bay Area. So I think he's a little busy. I, I saw he's going to be directing Putnam County Spelling Bee yeah, which, for stage works, which is great. Yeah, which is really, really cool. Uh, and in Rogers the Musical, there's going to be the Save the City song, which you can see and hear in Hawkeye, the Star Spangled Man from the first Captain America film. Uh, and then there's five new original songs written just for this production. I love that this is a reality. What a world, what a time. I mean, truly, we are living in the Avengers songs. Um, so good. All right. I'm hungry. You're hungry. We're all hungry. It's time to eat like the Guardians of the Galaxy. This is super fun. HelloFresh is introducing a limited edition Guardians snack adventure kit with some Zarg nut bites as seen in the Guardians of the Galaxy films and some mango milky fizz as seen in the latest Guardians trailer and a Guardians recipe adventure series inspired by Marvel Studios Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in theaters on May 5th. Go get your tickets right now, y'all. Yeah. But Ryan and I actually got some really cool snack boxes from HelloFresh. Yeah, we're going to make the zargnut bites i'm gonna yeah. i can't wait because it, it's just so fun like my family we actually are hello fresh customers and so when i got the uh, the info about this i told my wife and she immediately went on the app reserved uh what she could because in, on top of the the stuff that we got the snack adventure kit which everybody out there can um, go check that out at hellofreshadventure.com there's kits dropping um next week the week after and the week after that but there's also guardians recipes like inspired by the characters and so we've got all those lined up too which is pretty dang cool I'm super excited to make them because I just opened the box and the mango milky fizz looks so good. That's right up my alley. Mm -hmm. It's like coconut milk and seltzer and has some apricot jam and mango bits. And it like it's giving kind of a, a bubble tea situation. I'm into it. Yum, 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 yum. Of course, go check out HelloFreshAdventure.com for all this stuff. If you're lucky, maybe you'll get a kit. Otherwise, get yourself some recipes. Yum, 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 yum. Yeah. Um, and speaking of those recipes, there are six recipes, each themed to a different member of our favorite Galactic Misfits. So two recipes are going to be featured each week, and they're available to HelloFresh customers. 
There's a Terran-style St. Louis sandwich. <laughs> There's a destroyed Thai chili coconut smash patties. Um, some galactic beef melts. Some galaxy greens with ricotta ravioli. Everything sounds super tasty. All themed around the Guardians. Go check them out. Yeah. All right, let's shift over to the podcasties of the world with Marvel's Voices podcast this week on the show. It's the season finale, and host Angelique Rocher is talking to professor, curator, artist, and author John Jennings about writing Silver Surfer Ghostlight. Uh, spoiler, the book is real good. Y'all should read it. Um, and they talk about the book that they're co-writing together, My Superhero is Black, which I'm sure is also going to be great. Yeah. Angelique has been writing this book for quite some time along with John Jennings, and uh, I can't wait for everybody to check it out. I think you can pre-order that book now. This episode is out right now, so go listen to it and the first seven episodes on the SiriusXM app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But that isn't the only podcast going around. Ryan, what's going on this week on Marvel's Pull List? Yeah, Marvel's Pull List is the podcast where we talk about all the comics out every week. We give our picks for the week. This week, we are picking and suggesting and telling you, pleading with you, go pick up Captain America Cold War Alpha, number one, Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse, number one, and Guardians of the Galaxy, number one. Holy moly, Guardians of the Galaxy, if you are looking for a good-ass Western, this is like a space Western. It rules so much. It's like the boys, Colin and, and Jackson, uh, who are writing it, were built to write westerny one-liners. It's real fun. Make my spurs, cowboy. I didn't is know that, where that was going. All right. Is that, uh, what I, that was my good western Good job, writing. Lorraine. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and on this reading club, where we talk about a book that you can check out in Marvel Unlimited, we're joined by Marvel Comics associate editor Annalise Bisa to discuss the iconic Storyline New Avengers Breakout, which is from 2004, 2005, written by Brian Michael Bendis and drawn by David Finch. And really interesting to think about this now, 19-ish years later, because it really changed the landscape for the Avengers. You know, of course, you had Captain America and Iron Man in there, but it introduced Luke Cage as an Avenger. Spider-Man as a full-time Avenger. Spider-Woman. Wolverine as an Avenger. It brought back the Sentry. It established Stark Tower slash Avengers Tower. It really set up a whole bunch of things that would influence all of Marvel for years to come. It's a really fun conversation about that book and really, really great. So go check that out. Of course, new episodes of Marvel's Pull List are out every Tuesday, which is a perfect time to help you get ready for Wednesday's new comic book day. Listen on the SiriusXM app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also this week, we wanted to pay our respects to the late, great Al Jaffe. Al Jaffe passed away this week. Just amazing career. A little bit of work for Marvel. Created Ziggy Pig and Silly Seal, among other things, which, you know, still has a legacy to this day. We just had some Infinity Comics with those characters. But you probably know Al from his decades and decades of amazing inspirational work on Mad Magazine and elsewhere. So truly, truly a legend. And we thank Al for all his work in comics and beyond. All right, we're going to be right back after this with Jeffrey Brown. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to This Week in Marvel. I'm still Lorraine Sink. And I'm Ryan Panagos. And we 
are here to talk more. <laughs> um, I, yes, we're going to talk more. I'm going to talk more because yeah, I am are. talking with cartoonist Jeffrey Brown about his new book, Thor and Loki Midgard Family Mayhem. I adore Jeffrey Brown's work. Uh, all of his stuff. I've been a fan for, God, I guess 20 years now, which is just melting me inside. All of his diary comics to his Star Wars stuff to uh, his sort of parody superhero Transformers-y things, all of that. But really... This first big foray into Marvel, which he's done a little bit previously. We'll get into that in the conversation. But this big one, this Thor and Loki book is so friggin good. All right. Let's not just hear from me. Let's talk to Jeffrey right now. I'm delighted to welcome to the show right now, Jeffrey Brown, writer, artist of Thor and Loki, Midgard Family Mayhem. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, delighted. Now, before we get into all of our other questions, our main questions, I do want to say that um, one, been a big fan of yours for a long time. I feel like we've met at like a mocha or something over the years. I used to work at Wizard Magazine, so probably covered your stuff way back when in, in Secret Stash or whatever. I've got all your your books and stuff, but two pieces of art that you made for me that I wanted to show you here. Uh, oh, cool. One is... Let's see if it shows up. It's an, in one of my old sketchbooks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you did uh, a great piece that I love. It says courage, honor, respect. And it's uh, of yeah. your, your autobio version of yourself riding a unicorn with a rainbow behind you, which is great. I love that. And then, so uh, Ricky Purden, who's the head of Marvel's Talent yeah. Relations, commissioned a piece from you for me and my wife oh. years ago. Oh, wow. And it is uh, me and my wife surrounded by cats which is great. It was a wedding gift. It's awesome that you have those and to see them. Yeah. So when I heard you were going to be coming on the show and then you had a Marvel project, I was friggin' delighted. Makes me very happy. So we're going to get into all that stuff, but we got to start now with Jeffrey. Tell us your Marvel origin story. How and when did you first encounter Marvel as a fan? Just growing up, I have two older brothers and they were never into comics as much as I was, but they would get comics sometimes. And we had a local comic shop and I'd start going in there. And then there was the spinner rack at the, you know, Meyer grocery store. Yeah. So I just started like buying comics off the rack. And the, the first comic that I bought was like my own money. Like my, didn't have to ask my, like it wasn't my parents buying it for me it was um, X-Men issue 192 from then on, that's where my allowance went was was <laughs> comics and X Men was like the first, but Secret Wars I think maybe is what really expanded me into like collecting like every other Marvel comic too. It's hard to sort of like think about it now, you know, in twenty twenty three when in eighty four, eighty five Secret Wars was doing this thing that sort of reset the way we get new characters and, and sort of share the adventures across a whole line of comics. It's just, mm -hmm. it's such a game changer. Um, it, it was just a few years before I was really heavily into comics. So I, I only see it even in my own little bit of, um, you know, third, third person view of it. But, uh, yeah, I, I can imagine that was just like, who's that person? Who's that? What's that villain? Where are they from? Well, and then the whole crossover aspects, was was really interesting because with Secret Wars you just have there would be like three pages in an issue of Spider Man that were actually related to Secret Wars. It's like you know just like there's Captain America in the background on, in a street scene and 
Spider-Man's wondering what Captain America's doing there. And then you have to like go get Captain America to find out like, and then the issue of Captain America, you see Spider-Man in the background. And yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you've been a cartoonist for quite a long time. How'd you start your career? You know, it was kind of a, a really roundabout path that I took. So, you know, growing up as a kid, I was like reading comics and I was like, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm going to draw Marvel comics and that's it. But, you know, I got to high school, started like drifting away from superheroes and then drifting away from comics. And by the time I was in college, I was thinking, you know, I'm a fine artist and I'm going to be a painter. And, um, you know, I was really trying to absorb all the art history I could and thinking about art, the capital A art. But I moved to Chicago to get my MFA. And while I was here uh, at the School of the Art Institute, it just wasn't clicking and art was becoming less and less fun. Felt like I was just hitting a wall creatively and in terms of what I wanted to express. And so just to take a break, I was like, you know, when I was a kid drawing comics, it was fun, like no pressure. I loved it. And so I'm just going to draw a comic for fun. You know, at the time being in art school, you're seeing all this work that's very cerebral and, you know, it's like paintings about the history of painting in a painting. And I was, you know, what does this say about life? And so I just thought, just write something as like explicitly about real life as possible. So I started out writing these autobiographical comics, just basically about awkward everyday moment. So I started that and I was like, this totally feels right. This feels like what I should be doing. And and then, you know, I'm looking at my sketchbooks and my sketchbooks are just filled with like little comics and cartoony drawings anyway. And I was like, I never really stopped making comics. I just didn't realize like it was okay that that could be my main thing. Yeah. And, you know, you, you rose up in a time where I think there was like this wave of really awesome autobio stories and, and indie comics were doing some really cool stuff that was getting also like a, a little bit more attention. And maybe different from where it was previously. And it's, it's great. You, you rose up and did some really cool stuff and even, you know, you've not done a ton of Marvel stuff, but we've been blessed by a little bit of work of yours at Marvel. You contributed to two of my favorite things in the entire world, which is uh, the strange tales anthologies, mm -hmm. which are, I just realized now almost 15 years old for the first wow. one. Yeah. Uh, in the first one, you did an April fool's day, fantastic four story. And then in the second one, there was a four-page X-Men sort of romance-ish mm -hmm. story in Strange Tales 2. How much leeway did you have with those stories? And tell us how that all kind of came together. Yeah, it was kind of last minute. So I think what happened was that they had a two-page story lined up for the first volume. And then whoever it was wasn't going to be able to get their piece done. I think it was Heidi McDonald that passed my name along. It's like, oh. If you need someone to fill that spot, you know, why not try Jeffrey Brown? He's a Marvel fan. And yeah, so they asked me and I it was like really quick, super quick turnaround because it was like very last minute. So I had to pitch a few ideas and it was only two pages. So it was kind of like limited. X-Men was like my first go-to like thing that I wanted to do. But um, I had a fanta the Fantastic Four idea. And so that was the one that we went with. And then, yeah, and then when they did the second volume, then they asked me to come back and I had more space. And yeah, I was really happy to kind of do like the like a four page summary of my love of X-Men. 
It's super fun. And I believe you have a variant cover for Thor coming out soon. Yeah, yeah. They're going to put one of my Thor and Loki drawings. So that, that'll be fun. That'll be my first Marvel variant cover. Woo. Hopefully not the last. We want more, 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 more. Um, but, you know, speaking of Thor, we were a fan of Thor growing up as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I liked the Avengers and, you know, it was the Walt Simonson Thor is kind of really where like Thor became like my, probably my second favorite after X-Men. And a lot of that was just his art style seemed very different. You know, it stood out. And then just story-wise, those comics are just such a, a lot of fun. Like they're just really fun stories. There's a little bit of drama here and there, you know, mm-hmm. like there's, there's some stakes, but visually there was just something that really grabbed me. And like, you have like an issue with the, where he's fighting the Midgard serpent and doing different things with panel layouts. And I just really liked those. Yeah. I, I can tell, you know, reading the the new book, Thor and Loki Midgard family mayhem, you could tell the Walt Simonson influence in there, whether it's the, there's a beta Ray bill gag. There's the, the world serpent gag is really, really fun. That, that comic, uh, that strip in there is really good. Um, even like scourge is showing up in, mm-hmm. in that vibe. I was like, Oh yeah. Here's the guy who's read a lot of Walt. Yeah. Yeah. Beta Ray bill. I love it. It was like, that was one of the things that I wanted to make sure to like get in the book was at least one or two better Ray bill pages. How's it feel then to actually get to write and draw a book with Thor and Loki and, and get to, you know, play around with these characters, give them your own spin, like actually have some fun with the lore that you grew up with. It was a lot of fun. One of the things that I've tried to do with my Star Wars books is just always kind of draw on real life. It's like, especially with like Darth Vader and son started from my son being four. And so it's like all my experiences as a parent and so with Thor and Loki, it's just, I had two older brothers and we didn't get into any particularly dangerous trouble, but <laughs> there were times where we, we we stressed our parents out with mischief. And, you know, I think Thor and Loki's relationship, whether it's the comics or, you know, the cinematic universe, they bicker and squabble, they have their disagreements, but then they team up and get things done and that's kind of how having older brothers was. It's like, you'd be fighting. Then the bully from down the street is messing with one of us. And then, you know, it's all three brothers are like, okay, <laughs> stop this. And then just, you know, drawing them is fun. Like I drew Thor a ton growing up. And yeah, again, you can probably tell it's like the classic Walt Simonson costume. So just getting to draw that like over and over is didn't get old at all. <laughs> I'm glad we talk a little bit about sort of the, the situations. I want to couch what like, the book is kind of for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. It's uh, like you, you've got these humorous one page or two, sometimes two page snapshots into the everyday life of a uh, little kid Thor and little kid Loki along with, you got their parents, Odin and Freya, and, and you got a whole ton of other Asgardian characters. Um, you got them sharing a room, playing with their friends, doing chores, going to school, but like mischief and mayhem, as it says. Can you give us a couple of the examples of the, you know, maybe some of the ones you were just like, I got to put this in the book. So like trying to figure out, like I knew that I would want to put some of the Avengers in there. So of course, you know, like what are some ideas like where I can fit as many Avengers in as possible? And so you know, obviously like playing on the playground and I like, I've done some Star Wars playground scenes, but I hadn't really done tag before. And so of course 
in the story, they're playing freeze tag because Loki's just freezing everybody. And, it's just, and then, uh, you know, just there's a decent number of Thor just calling down lightning strikes for various reasons. <laughs> so, you know, another one I like, I definitely wanted to fit in alligator Loki if I could. Yeah. So I had this idea of like, you know, getting on the bus and Loki's just messing around and he's, he's alligator Loki, which th- that was the original idea. Really happy that I, I got to draw Alligator Loki. Yeah, it must have been real tough doing all the research on Alligator Loki, just having to read some really fun, <laughs> silly comics. I mean, yeah, that's the hard the hard part in, in general. You know, it's like I went back, I had to reread, you know, all the <laughs> the whole Walt Simonson oh, run. No. And then I had to read the, you know, the Asgardian Wars, you know, the crossover with X-Men and New Mutants where they're in Asgard. You know, I had to watch all the Avengers movies again and all the Thor movies. So the research is the hard part, really. (laughs) We mentioned some of the characters who showed up there. Who are some of the other, you know, characters you pulled in for this? Because it's it's not just Thor and Loki and their parents. I mean, you really dig into a lot of Asgard. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Balder the Brave shows up, the three heroes, you know, of course, Scourge. Walt Simonson's take on Scourge, you know, is this kind of like redemptive story of a character who in the end does the right thing. But, you know, I, I just like taking Scourge as like, I don't know, lackadaisical babysitter who's, you know, it's he's like a, giving them ice cream yeah. and, and, and soda right yeah, before bed. not the most Fine. responsible. Definitely not the most responsible. Um, you know, talking about being a dad, you know, fatherhood obviously sort of influences some of the work that you're doing here, but from a more fundamental level, do you think it, it shaped or changed the way you think about your work, your work overall, or is it just sort of like sort of more influential in the, the types of things you're doing? Um, I think both. I definitely, in terms of like my autobiographical work, I definitely think differently about what I'm writing and how I'm writing. I I did one book called Kids Are Weird, where which is basically like true stories of goofy stuff that my son Oscar said as he was like learning to put sentences together. Yeah. So like with a book like that, I was you know being a little more careful about what I was including, and I actually had him go through and approve everything that went into the book <laughs> to make sure he was okay with it. Although sure. now he's sixteen, I'm not sure if he's still okay with everything. But I mean, I, I don't think there's anything too embarrassing in there that he should worry about. So part of it is just the kind of natural influence of being around kids. Yeah, I, I have a three and a half year old daughter. And so it's all of it is fascinating. And they are exceptionally weird. And, and it's <laughs> awesome. And I love it. And she'll just like, make up these little lies. And she'll go, I tricked you. And I'm just like, Where did you even get like that? Just you just developed that from mm-hmm. from your own brain. It's great. Obviously, you know, the, the book has got a lot of wild stuff. There's, uh, there's, you know, weird manipulative moments for Thor and Loki, which are fun. Uh, there's also some life lessons in there, which are, are neat. I, I like the quote, uh, if all your friends jumped off the rainbow bridge, would you too? <laughs> which is good. I was like, it's just, when you're thinking about this, thinking about the book and all the, the different things you want to put in there. And then also like some of the, the pages are silent and it's really just, you know, just a a scene thinking about that as a cartoonist how do you balance those silent moments and situational storytelling Mm -hmm. versus you know oh this i I want this dialogue to tell our our tales or just looking like thinking about the gag and saying this is going to work better because of xyz 
so like my process is basically to start out with just coming up with sketches. So this book is around 60 pages of material and I'll try to come up with like 120 to 150 ideas. Some are just like the idea of them playing checkers and Thor, you know, is like just saying King me and just like, just all super excited about winning at checkers and Loki's just unamused. You know, that was like an idea that was just like, boom, it just came into my head. And then sometimes it's, I'll write down, I want to come up with an idea about kids being jealous of another kid or kids having a snack right before dinner. For those, it's then I have to like think like, okay, well, what characters would, would work or what would the situation be? And then sometimes it's like, you know, like I want to draw Betta Ray Bill. What's, what's the, the thing that I could come up with for Betta Ray Bill? And this might be something that, you know, like seeing with like my kids and, you know, more so than remembering my own childhood. But, you know, it's like kids have this way of when they'll, they'll compare things to each other. Like, like, I like your sweatshirt. So cool. Look at my sweatshirt. And they're, you know, they're just comparing sweatshirts. So of course, Battery Bill and Thor would have to like compare their hammers and like, like they both like hammers are so cool. They're just like these, you know, hammer nerds. So um, sometimes it's like having like a character or, or a situation with Thor or Loki that, and then I have to figure out like what's the childhood equivalent of something that they could fit in. It's great. It's super duper fun. Shifting gears, think, you know, without tipping your hand or anything, what other Marvel characters are are just in your brain itching to get out and into whether it's a comic or a book? I mean, I'm, I'm sure as a fan, you've got they're just in there. Like I would love to do something with Secret Wars. I mean, you got the Beyonder right there. He's yeah. our like quirky, weird entry point into everything we've been doing a bunch yeah. of stories with the beyonder over the last couple of years you know popping up and 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 what the beyonder means to different characters and it's it's a lot of fun like if beyonder is our like little kid character i'm into it yeah but yeah you know like x-men is like another one the guardians of the galaxy i've i really like especially rocket raccoon but i've had a little harder time letting it stew in my brain of like what that would look like mm. um and so Sometimes with these books, it's, you know, it's like with Thor and Loki, it just, it kind of clicks instantly. It's like, oh, they're little kids, brothers and sibling rivalry, sibling love it was just came super easy and obvious. Whereas like, if I was going to do all of the Avengers, what would that look like? What would like be the key theme that I could hone in on to you know kind of hang all the gags on? For the Marvel fans listening who will now be new to your work, and I would love to share some of your previous stuff that you you may want them to check out. Obviously, there's the Star Wars stuff. Um, I was thinking of Sulk or Incredible Change Bots, which I love as a big Transformers guy. Cat getting out of a bag. I love that stuff. I, I think those are all pretty great. Like So just last year, the collection of the autobiographical relationship books came out, Loved and Lost. So it collects my first three books and yeah, they're just like the most awkward, embarrassing <laughs> moments about getting dumped, basically. Yeah, and Incredible Change Bots. Like, I there's three books, like two books that are kind of main narrative, and then the third book is kind of a collection of like all kinds of stuff. Like, I, I did a couple one pagers for Wizard over the years, mini comics for a free comic book day, and then I had a fan club, and I would do like little mini comics and newsletters for the fan club, and that's all collected. Yeah, Changebots was a ton of fun. I have still have the unrealized 
third volume that would be the the G.I. Joe Transformers crossover equivalent. Sign me up. But yeah, then I started doing Star Wars, and (laughs) where do I find the the time to go back to that? I don't know. Someday, maybe. But lots of great stuff. Everybody can go go check all that stuff out at, uh, was it jeffreybrowncomics.com? Yeah. I believe. Yep. Check all that out. Also, I wanted to shout out your Instagram, because you you post all kinds of cool stuff there, including I saw a lot of doodles of Thor and Loki and Thor and Kermit, which was great. Yeah. So for my comic shop, you know, I get the previews catalog and every month and I do a little doodle for them. What's the comic shop? Oh, uh, Dark Tower Comics here in Chicago. Nice. And I'll, I'll be there on uh, free comic book day for anyone in Chicago who might want to head out there. I literally today should be finishing up art on a still unannounced project. So <laughs> I can't explain what it is just yet, but if you want to file that away to... Um, think about put it in my brain yeah figure that out. that's good that's good of course thor and loki midgard family mayhem releases tuesday april 18th and is available to pre-order now wherever books are sold jeffrey thank you so much pal yeah thanks for talking to me yeah What a ding dang delight. Um, Of course, go pick up your copy of Thor and Loki Midgard Family Mayhem wherever you get your books or fine comics. Wow. Big, big week. Next week, we're going to be talking about something super secret. Yeah, something super secret that I am very excited to reveal and talk about a lot. So hashtag secrets. We'll talk about it next week. In the meantime, we want to know what was your favorite moment from the Marvel's teaser trailer? There's so much to love. Kamala, Flurkins, Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau, Nick Fury, Kamala's family <laughs> being just a normal family caught up in this absolute mayhem and their daughter who is a cosmic nuisance in the most delightful and wonderful way. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, there's so many great moments in that teaser. I probably would go with all the Kamala stuff in particular, like her reaction to seeing Nick Fury, like in the middle of her sheer terror, like the, the quick switch, which is just so much fun. Or when she sees the flurkin for the first time. Amazing. Amazing. So good. So good. Um, I love Kamala's family so much. And like, I'm just excited that they're going to be in this film because I love that dynamic. And I just love how grounding it is because sometimes our characters are like literally out in space. It's crazy heightened circumstances. And it's so nice to just be reminded of like a normal suburban family in New Jersey who's like, my kid's doing what? Um, It's just so delightful. So much great stuff. Big action. Great bops in the trailer. Can't wait but let us know your favorite moment and your favorite spots in the trailer you can tweet us your answers using hashtag this week in marvel email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com or send us a message on our facebook page at facebook.com slash this week in marvel and of course please tell us if it's okay to read on the show so we can read it on the show which we're going to do right now as we get into our community section aka this week in messages this week in messages Uh, The question of the week last week was, are you Team Thor or Team Loki and why? First up, Ethan at Geekin' Out Ethan said, Team Thor, because he has the power of strength, thunder, and lightning. Hmm. Yoanga at Joanna72012172 said, Team Loki. Loki is sexy, handsome, intelligent, talented, clever, and funny. I love him. 
If you love him so much, why don't you marry him? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bestie underscore world said team Thor because he is the strongest and most powerful Avenger. And I love his hammer. Oh, my God. One of my all time favorite panels from Marvel Comics ever. I cannot tell you what issue it is from, but I have saved it somewhere in my screenshots file of all the things I just find very tickling in comics is there's this wonderful, like very 1960s or 70s looking Thor panel where it's a bunch of girls sitting at a booth at a diner and they're turned around the corner and they're like, tell us about your hammer, Thor. (laughs) One of the greatest of all times. Just perfect. When I saw the the tweet go out from Marvel, I was like, you know what? I'm changing my answer. I am choosing Team Thory, aka Thor's Whoa. dog. Yeah. The just his little murder dog. So he good. He looks so then, angry, but he's such a sweet baby. So yeah, I know. So sweet. So angry. So wonderful. <laughs> uh, I saw someone said, "I'm I'm joining you. I'm choosing Team Throg." Oh, um, into it. Yeah, Simon Walterson. I believe was his name uh, back then. Yeah, Simon, because they said, uh, I'm picking Simon because that is some badass character design and can't disagree. I have a little throg on my shelf and he never ceases to make me happy. No. All right. Next up, we got an email from Joe Hoffman that said, I hope you are doing well in the rain. I hope you had a wonderful birthday. Thank you. And that you remember you're not getting older. You're just getting better. Or that's how I look at things anyway. (laughs) In your answer to the question of the week, I'm Team Thor all the way. The Odin son is one of my favorite characters in all of Marvel, especially as Chris Hemsworth awesomely portrays him in the MCU. I love Thor's generous spirit, how he fights to defend people in need, like the children of New Asgard who got kidnapped by Gore the God Butcher in Marvel Studios' Thor Love and Thunder. And I take heart in the fact that even the God of Thunder has difficulties with love and romance, just as I do. Hope you all have an amazing week in Marvel Twin Family. I'll check you out soon. Thanks, Joe. What a great message. Also, I just love everything that Chris Hemsworth has brought to the role of Thor comedically. I think Thor can be a really serious character, and I think that is also really fun and delightful. But I love the just sort of like big dumb jock vibe that's also like well-intended golden retriever energy, Mm. sweet baby boy, sometimes clueless (laughs) nature of Chris Hemsworth's portrayal of Thor is really just chef's kiss. Indeed. We got an email from Carol who said, I am Team Loki 100%. Loki is my favorite Marvel character of all time, possibly my favorite character ever. He's so lovable and so complex and basically no one understands him, which is so heartbreaking. He just needs some love, which is why I have so much appreciation for Mobius and Sylvie in the MCU and Verity Willis in the comics. I am Team Loki all the way. Well said, Carol. I like that you represent both the comic side and the MCU side. That is it for us this week. This episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Kara McGurk-Allison, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Loki's artichokies. Loki's artichokies. They're green. They're mean. They'll trick ya. Loki's artichokies. <laughs> I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe.